Hey everybody, this is So Heidi, and you're listening to the Successful Fashion Designer Podcast. We all know that the fashion industry is brutally competitive and it takes loads of hard work to get ahead. The problem is that everyone's secretive and tight-lipped about their ways. After working as a designer and educator for over a decade, I wanted to help break down those barriers and bring you valuable knowledge from industry experts, and this show is exactly where you'll find that. Whether you're trying to break into the fashion world, make yourself more marketable, launch your own label, or become a successful freelancer, we'll help you get ahead in the cutthroat fashion industry. Welcome to another episode, a special episode of the Successful Fashion Designer Podcast. If you normally fast forward through the intro, don't do that because I have some extra special things to share with you before we dive into this awesome, awesome episode. Uh, first of all, if you saw from the title, we are talking about freelancing today. Um, I introduce the interview and introduce who I'm chatting with once I actually start chatting with Marissa. So I won't bore you with those details in the pre-intro intro. But instead, what I do want to tell you about is uh, my freelance program. It is called Successful Fashion Freelancer, and it will be opening up to the masses in January. And I am super, super excited about this course. It's something I have spent about two and a half, maybe close to three years developing, running beta students through it, getting feedback, improving the curriculum, so on and so forth. And it is finally ready to share with you. So that being said, if you are interested in freelancing, if you wanna kickstart or grow your freelance career and take it to the next level, Get yourself on the wait list. You can do that by going to soheidi.com slash freelance. It's S-E-W-H-E-I-D-I.com slash freelance. We will link to that in the show notes. When you sign up for that, I will also send you my free ultimate guide to being a fashion freelancer. And then you'll also be on the wait list for the program when it opens up in January of 2020. If you're listening to this at a different date that is happening after January 2020, that's fine. You can still get yourself on the wait list to find out the next time the program opens. And without further ado, let's dive into this chat that I had with Marissa Borelli, an awesome kick-ass, super, super successful freelancer. She and I both reached six figures. Uh, She is still freelancing. I am no longer freelancing. I am now running SFD full-time, but she is still kicking major butt in her career. And we go through a ton of questions that you guys sent in. Again, I introduced a lot of this in the actual interview and not really interview, AMA, ask me anything. So let's just jump right into chatting with Marissa. Any of the resources mentioned, as always, you can scroll down and get those by clicking through to the show notes wherever you listen to podcasts. So here we go. Hi. Hi. Um, You guys, I'm super excited today because we're doing a really special episode. We're doing an AMA, which is an Ask Me Anything. And it's really should be an AUA, Ask Us Anything. (laughs) (laughs) I just made that up on the spot. Um, But I'm here today with Marissa Borelli, um, a friend and a very successful freelancer in the fashion industry. And what I did is I put a call out for questions to listeners and email subscribers. And tons of you guys sent in your questions. And Marissa and I are going to go through and answer as many of them as possible 
Um, we got so many questions. A lot of them, there's a, quite a bit of overlap. So we're going to kind of try to bundle them and give you guys big answers um, to to help you kickstart or grow your freelance career. And I will preface this conversation with one thing, and that is that a lot of these questions are actually answered in my ultimate guide to being a freelance fashion designer. It's an absolutely free resource. We will link to it in the show notes. Um, so if you haven't gone through that, you know, definitely listen to this episode. There's going to be some fun conversation between Marissa and myself, but also check that out because it is just a great resource to guide you step-by-step through your freelance career. So that being said, um, Marissa, can you just do a quick introduction of who you are and what you do in the fashion industry before we get started diving into the questions? Yes. Hi, everybody. So I have been freelance designing activewear. That's my main little niche for about nine years. Um, Sometimes I've gone in-house at Lululemon and Athleta, but most of the time I've been freelancing. I've worked for Under Armour and Mizuno, and right now I'm at Cricut. So um, it just, yeah, but it's been a fun ride these past nine years. Awesome. And to give you guys all a quick background, because I just realized that, you know, obviously my history is very obvious to me, but I'm usually the host of this podcast, so you don't really hear much about my story and history. Um, But I dove into freelancing shortly after I had my first job in the industry, and I uh, freelanced for about a decade, 10 years. And like Marissa, grew to a six-figure income doing all remote freelancing. So I want to preface this conversation with when we talk about freelancing, we're not talking about this permalancer thing where you get a job that's freelance, but it's three months and they make you go on site and work 40 hours a week. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about true freelancing here. Um, And so like Marissa, that's what I did uh, for for a good decade of my life. Um, I don't have nearly as many brag-worthy names as as you do. I work for a lot of middle America, um, very unglamorous um, trading company, golf, some lifestyle and active active stuff. Um, but it was a great career and, and definitely had a lot of lessons learned. So that is who Marissa and I are. And let's kickstart with the first question. So something that comes up a lot from people is this idea of starting a freelance career or business, however you want to call it, without any experience. So these are some of the things people say. Um, I'd love to know how to start freelancing if you haven't worked in the industry before. How can a designer fresh out of design school become an at-home freelancer? So Marissa, I'll toss this to you first. What are your thoughts and expertise advice on, on this sort of strategy? I would say if you can, um, get some experience first before you start freelancing, just so you know what the workflow is like. Cause if you're coming straight out of school, um, they didn't like, I went to Parsons in New York city and it's a very good school, but it didn't prepare me for production or like the whole design flow experience and how quick everything is. Um, it taught me color theory and how to use illustrator and Photoshop, but so I would try to get experience beforehand and that's what you'll be able to like base your freelance career off of. So my first job, I was, I was actually the only employee and I was working from home. So I've been doing this working from home situation for a long time, which is why I think it works for me too. Um, but I was designing a clothing line for Carrie Walsh. And then next I went to Lululemon. And then after that, I went to Mizuno. Oh, and I went to Green Apple in between that and Green Apple I was doing for TJ Maxx and Marshalls. So some of those were freelance and some of them were in-house. 
But once you get more experience, um, it's a lot easier for companies to find you. And then instead of showing your resume, you know, you have your portfolio, but really they just want to know what brands you've worked for, what experience you have. And then I think it's easier to get a freelance job. Yeah, I would agree. The only thing I really have in addition to that is just that I think what, like you said, what you learn in school, and I didn't even go to fashion school. Um, I learned everything on the job. I, I got my foot in the door because of my computer skills at the first mm. I worked at. Um, but is it, I just don't, when it comes to freelancing, sometimes you might just be doing like, okay, here, do these five tech packs or do these, these flat sketches. But a lot of times it comes down to you managing portions of the project and driving that and handling the client and different processes throughout the design and the development uh, calendar. And so it's really hard, I think, to do that if you don't have that hands-on experience from an right. office first. Mm-hmm. And I do know a couple of people that have done this and they started very small and very slow with like small gigs on Upwork and working with really small startups and they kind of got their feet wet on, you know, not like big name projects because that's not going to happen right out of the door without any experience. It's just not. Um, but it is going to be a slow lower up more uphill build if you choose to go that direction so i completely agree i'd i'd get yourself at least a couple years i would say two to three years of experience and then you know maybe look at kickstarting your freelance career on the side once you kind of have that base and growing from there mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, um okay let's dive into the next question which is getting set up um, so a lot of people ask something like this. Do I need to create a company and register with the government? What do I need to do for accounting and taxes? I'm just not even sure how to get started. So first disclaimer, Marissa and I are not lawyers. We are not CPAs, but we will give right. you our <laughs> personal advice. Um, Marissa, what did you do for your company? So I didn't um, set up an LLC or an S Corp until I was making six figures. I didn't oh, do it right at the beginning. It. And that's what the CPA told me to do. They're like, if you're making under a hundred thousand dollars, you don't need to. Yeah. Um, but I mean, I had contracts that I sent out to everybody. So it's not like they could come back and, and you know, sue me for my house or I didn't even own a house back then, but you know what I mean? Like I, so I didn't set it up until I was at six figures. Okay. I set mine up right away. Um, I set up an LLC, which here in the United States is a limited liability corporation. And essentially what it does is it gets you an EIN, which is an employer identification number. And you can use that for tax purposes instead of using your um, social security number. So you wind up running everything through this LLC, your your limited liability corporation business. Um, It does provide you with some protection between your business and your personal assets. So if you do own a home or even if you own a car or something like that, um, and I say this uh, with a little bit of confidence because I did just finish interviewing a lawyer for the SFD Mm. podcast. Yeah. And she, um, the episode's not live yet. Well, depending on when you're listening to this episode, but um, she advises the same to set up the LLC. In most states, it's like going to cost you like 50 bucks. It's not much. And it just provides a level of protection between you and your business and your personal assets. Um, So you can do that. You can do it yourself. You don't need a lawyer. Just Google LLC plus the state that you're living in. If you're international, I don't really have any advice for you. But, you know, maybe you can look at like what's an LLC in 
you know, the UK, or I'm not totally sure. I can't really speak to that. Um, so I would kind of suggest getting that set up. The first few projects, like, you can just do on your own. Do under your, your personal mm-hmm. um, identity. Like, I don't think there's that big of a deal. I did happen to set mine up. Like you said, you waited six figures. Um mm. And from there, as far as like taxes and accounting, I'm not going to give any advice on that. That comes to getting a CPA, a certified public accountant. Yeah, definitely get one of those. Yes, definitely. I've never not done that. And I think you you mentioned to me you spent like 300 bucks on yours for the whole year Mm -hmm. to do your taxes Mm -hmm. at the end. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. My budget's always been about the same. It's like going to be, you know, between two to five hundred dollars once a year, and you just spend that money to make sure that you do your ta- your business taxes all correctly. And I would kind of advise that, like, you know, that comes at the end of the year once you've made a chunk of cash from freelancing. Like, you don't need to worry about this tomorrow. Right. Right. So, um, okay. So let's go to the next question with the sort of umbrella concept of, I'm not Mm -hmm. sure I'm good enough. I don't feel really confident. Um, And a lot of people talk about this self-confidence. They're concerned about their own talent. They're concerned about being able to pitch themselves and sell themselves. Um, So what is your advice and and thoughts on going through that? And is that something that you ever personally experienced? Oh, yeah. Um, (laughs) I mean, I still experience it. So I have little notes right next to my um, my computer that say be brave or you don't scare me. I have twins because I have twin little boys. Uh, (laughs) But um, yeah, I think it gets easier the more you do it. So, um, the first few times that I had to pitch people or called people and said like, Hey, do you need a freelance designer? Um, it was super scary, but, um, I think the more you do it, the easier it becomes. Um, another person that I love to use as a resource is Marie Forleo. If you just get on her email list, she sends a YouTube video once a week and she just takes calls calls, but she's all about confidence and charging more. And I mean, there's lots of stats that show that women, um, will always charge less than men. So I I always think about that. I'm like, okay, I need to charge a hundred dollars more and you can just do it super small and incrementally. Um, and then once the client like says, yes, you'll be more confident. So you'll be, Oh, okay. I can charge $800 for this or $1,200 for this. So <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'll say the same thing. Like, I definitely have gone through all these emotions. And it is one of those things like you just kind of have to start getting your feet wet. And you'll learn what I have seen amongst designers and, and people in the fashion industry, and maybe women even in general, including myself, is that we know so much more than we give ourselves credit for. Mm-hmm. We're mm-hmm. really good at self-doubt, right? We're really good at like, oh, well, I don't know if I could like manage this project or do I know enough to do this. And I think it comes down to, you know, more than you think. And if you get in a little bit over your head, that's okay. Be honest about the situation. And you can, I remember I used to go into um, sales meetings to present collections. So I, you know, we clients, you design their collection, you go to the trade show, you present the whole collection to the sales team. And I would have anxiety for like two months. Yeah, that's nerve wracking. Right? (laughs) 
I'm like getting up in front of like a 60 person sales team to present this. And I was like, well, what if I don't know the answers to all their questions? And what if I don't know this? And it's the same when it comes to like pitching yourself. Like what if they ask me to do this thing and I don't know? Like Mm -hmm. it always comes down to just be humble and just say, you know what? That's a great question. I'm not sure. Let me do some research and get back to you. Like you don't have to always put yourself on the spot to know everything. And I think it's the same when it comes to kind of putting yourself out there and pitching. Um, you'll you'll be in the situations where you don't know what to say and just say, you know what, let me get back to you on that. And then you'll learn and you can get better next time. And you'll often discover, I think, that you'll walk away from situations feeling like, oh, actually, I did better than I thought I was going to do. Like that worst case scenario that we create in our head almost never happens. No. And if you say it out loud, Marie Forleo is all about like (laughs) affirmations. (laughs) If you say it out loud, the worst thing can happen, you don't get the client. Yeah. And then you just move on. Like it's not not the end of the world. So it's uh, not. And like you have to get out there and you do have to sell yourself and you'll get more confident the more you do. So, um, you know, it's, my husband has this concept when it comes to job interviews, and I think it's the same when it comes to pitching yourself. Like, don't go for your dream job the first time that you're going to be doing an interview. Don't, like, pitch your dream brand first. Go to a couple brands that, like, you don't really care about and use it as an opportunity to bomb and to, like, totally crumble and, like, get that out of your system and, like, see how that feels and learn from that and then, you know, build your way up to that dream thing. Like, you would never go into your dream interview as, like, your very first interview. So it's the same with pitching. Don't go Mm -hmm. after your dream client and bomb on that. Like, Mm -hmm. do some practice rounds, um, even beyond friends and family, you know, or practicing in front of the mirror, things like that. Like, Actually put yourself out there to a brand that you're like, you know what? I'm just going to look at this as a practice. Yeah. Um, I used to go to outdoor retailer because so I'm in activewear and um, I would pitch all the clients, like all the big companies. I mean, huge companies and small little companies. And I would just walk up. I'd have my little business card and I'd say, hey, do you need a freelance designer? You can pitch like 400 companies in one day. I have never done that, but it's like the best way to practice it. Yeah. Oh man. I mean, it's just a humbling experience and then you get so much better at it the more you do it. So maybe try to go to a trade show that, um, is in your field because they're, they're free to go to when you're a designer usually. So, yeah, I remember we talked about that. Um, quick side note, I have interviewed Marissa on the podcast before and we'll link to that in the show notes, but you were telling the story of like, you were like, I would be in the hallway before I went oh, yeah. to the <laughs> exhibition hall and I was like doing jumping jacks to like build up some momentum yeah. to get out there and pitch. Uh huh. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's like just exercising for anything, like getting your body ready and you're in the mindset, like a rocky mindset. Yeah, it is. It's yeah. a muscle. And mm-hmm. it's right now you have not developed a muscle. So yeah. it, it takes a little while. It does but. take some time, but you do, you do just got to get yourself out there and do it. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. So let's move on to the big I shouldn't say the big. There's a lot of big questions, but one of the big ones, <laughs> portfolios. Um, so surprisingly, I didn't get as many questions about portfolios as I thought because this is something that comes up a lot. The first one is um, I'm trying to freelance, but I'm nervous about things like I don't want to submit my portfolio to freelance jobs for them to have. I worry about having my work stolen. You want to touch mm. on that? 
Yeah, I would get over that real quick yep. because everybody has their work out there. Um, and you should have your work out there. That's, that's how you're going to get hired. So, um, obviously if it's for a different company, you have to strip all that info. It has to be in your contract. You have to sign like all my contracts that I send out, I retain, I sign away the rights to the design, but then I get the rights to put it up on my portfolio once it hits the market. Yeah. So make sure that that's all legally taken care of, but I put as much work as I can up online. Um, and I don't, worry about that anymore. Sometimes people will still ask me, actually it's been a few years, but to do like a test project. Um, and I'll definitely say, well, I'm going to use that after in my portfolio because I don't know where that interview is going to go. So if you think about it that way, like if it's already up online, then it's okay that you're going to send it to the client. Um, cause there's, there's so much work up online. So I wouldn't worry about people stealing your stuff. Yeah. And my, my advice is the same. Like you just got to get over it. Um, I talk a little bit about this in my, um, I have a free ultimate guide to creating your fashion portfolio and there's a whole chapter on this topic. It's like, you got to just put yourself out there in fashion or do designs get stolen? Sometimes they do. And you know what? You got to move on and like get over it because no one's going to be able to see your work if you don't put yourself out there and share your work. Like you're, you're literally going to get nowhere. So you just kind of have to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. And then the next question relates more to technical designers. So, um, it is, what are some tips to present my technical design skills to potential clients seeing as I don't usually do design or do you recommend adding design to my package of services? So I don't think, don't just add design to your package of services just so you have like a portfolio to present. That doesn't make any sense to me. If you're a technical designer, then think about what do they want to see. They want to see technical drawings. They want to see tech packs. They want to see screenshots of your BOM, your bill Mm -hmm. materials, your graded spec. Um, You know, there's, and we'll link to this in the show notes, but there's another freelancer I know, Kimberly Dipple, who I've also interviewed on the podcast, and she's a technical designer as well. And her portfolio, she does a great job of representing herself as a technical designer. And I say portfolio with kind of air quotes, but um, she has pictures of garments in during fittings and then how she marks up those garments and she shows in her portfolio how she presents and communicates her edits to the factory just to show brands of like, you know, I know how to do fittings and I know how to mark these up and then I know how to share these changes with the, uh, the factories. And so really you want to just think about um, what is your process and how can you visually show that? Your process is tech packs. Your process is doing fittings, which involve taking pictures and then marking those up to communicate the changes. So that's what you want to communicate. Don't add a skill to your portfolio just so you can add design. That doesn't make sense to me. Um, what are, yeah, what are some of your thoughts on that? Um, well, I feel like that could be a good niche for that person who asked the question to go into. Like they're only a technical designer. Yeah. So, um, and instead of diluting their talent with, um, regular design, like they just focus on technical design and maybe that's how they'll pick up more clients. Um, in some like cities, I mean, I know up in Oregon, like up by Nike, technical designers make more freelance technical designers make more than regular designers. Um, and the reason why I found that out was because I took, I take every call from every recruiter just to, so I know the industry better. That's a tip for everybody. Take the calls, take the leads, take everything, talk to everybody. Um, but she told me that, yeah, the technical designers can charge like 75 to 85 an hour up there. So I think 
researching where you're at too and where you're pitching is a good is a good tip too so you know how much to charge per hour yeah that's a great piece of advice um and as far as i know and i've never focused on technical but in general technical designers definitely can and often do make more than right creative designers mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um and on that note i was gonna add something and it slipped my mind oh wait i was gonna add one more thing okay too. go ahead so, um, in my, when I send out a proposal, I like, we'll have a phone call and then I, I know how many pieces they want me to design. So then I put that all in the proposal. And then at the bottom, I say, if there's anything outside of this, um, I will charge my hourly rate and that's 150 an hour right now or 175 depends on when you, when you came on board with me, but, um, <laughs> But so you, you can always put that in there as like, they can ask you to do other things, but it's not included in your proposal. So, right. cause they might ask you a question about a headband or a hat or whatever, like an add on project. Um, or maybe just, they want your design input rather than just technical design. So at least you put that in there in yeah. case. That's a smart point. And it reminds me what I was going to say too. So, um, you made the comment and, I don't think we really have this covered in the questions, so we'll kind of just touch on it really quickly. But this whole concept of being niche is so, so, so valuable because what happens is most designers try to do everything for everybody. They want to do design. They want to do technical. They want to do denim and lingerie and active and all these different categories. And maybe you do have experience in all that because you've worked in the industry for 20 years, and that's great. But when it comes to being a freelancer, being niche is 100 times better. So and I know this sounds super contradictory and counterintuitive, but the less services and the less categories you offer, if you can be really specific to one category or one specific service, maybe it's technical design um, for women's only or something like that, you will get better projects. You will get better clients. They will pay you more. Um, Mm -hmm. And this is sort of conceptually and strategically something that can be very hard to wrap your head around. Um, I do talk through this in my book on freelancing and give some examples about times where you as the consumer want a very niche and specific service offering. You don't want to go to the restaurant that has Italian and Mexican and Asian food, right? That feels weird. So like that's just yeah, a no, quick Yeah, no, I wouldn't want to eat there. <laughs> yeah, like you want to go to the place that like makes the best burritos and tacos in the world and that's what they do. Mm-hmm. Um, so think about that in your freelance career. So yeah, I think you're right in commenting of like niche yourself in the technical market and don't worry about adding the design component of it. Um, And again, check out Kimberly's portfolio. Again, we'll link to that in the show notes because she does a great, great job at representing that. That might be another thing too, to help you build up your confidence. So I used to offer a bunch of different things. I used to offer like social media and like basically take your brand from concept to launch. And it was just, I'm not super fast at social media, right? I can't set up your Shopify store as fast as somebody who just focuses on Shopify. So once I stripped everything down and now I just focus on three main things, when I'm in an interview and they're like, oh, what do you do? I say, I do sourcing, I do design and technical design. That's it. Those are my three things. I don't, and I'm like, I don't do patterns. I don't sew samples. I say everything I don't do actually in my interviews because I don't want things like wires to get crossed. I don't want them to expect me to do all those things because I'm not the best at them. So, but I think it'll help you build your confidence. Like once you figure out those few things that you're really good at, 
you can be in an interview and say, yeah, no, I'm, I'm the best technical designer in California or whatever, you know, your thing is. Yeah, no, that's a great point. And my freelance career is very similar. Like I did golf and lifestyle. And so that kind of expanded into like some yoga and some Mm -hmm. light outerwear type of stuff, Um, both men's and women's. But, you know, that was the category. Like if you came to me for bras or um, jeans or backpacks, (laughs) I'm like, no, I don't do that. Or kids. Like I never did kids because that just doesn't make sense to me. Mm. Yeah. so. Kids is kind of fun. I've been doing more kids right now, oh, but it's have? all active wear. Okay, yeah. cool, cool. Yeah. And that's the other thing I think too when it comes to um, – we're getting off on a little bit of a tangent, but I think when it comes to freelancing is that – you can start niche and like don't worry about getting too pigeonholed because things will organically grow. Like that client that you that hired you for technical, you start maybe sharing some design ideas with them because hey, you also have a design eye and the next thing you know, the project turns into design, but you don't need to pitch that. You don't need to present yourself as that to begin with. It's going to be a lot easier to kickstart all those projects and get those clients at first when you're niche. And then sometimes if you want and it doesn't have to, the projects can grow. Like you said, oh, look, I'm now doing kids or, oh, Mm -hmm. I went from doing golf and yoga into doing some running and um, some some more outerwear type of things. And so stuff can grow even though you niched yourself at the beginning. So I think people get so nervous about like pigeonholing themselves. I don't want to get stuck in this one thing. Hmm. Well, I mean, I don't know. That that also goes back to why I did it. I just love activewear. Like that's why I went to design school to design activewear. So I, if I stick in something, then I like I stay in it. It's what I love to do, and then it it doesn't feel like work. Yeah. And the other thing too is like it's hard to keep. It's not hard. It's almost impossible to keep up in multiple categories, like trends and fabrics and oh yeah, fabrication and construction techniques. Like that's so hard. So, Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. okay, let's move on. Cause I think we got a little off track based on the original question, (laughs) but always good things to talk about. Um, the next really, really big question comes down to how do I find clients? So let me read a couple things that people wrote in. Uh, what are some of the best methods of finding quality clients who need my skills? Uh, I'm not seeing freelance jobs in the market. They all want you in-house. Um, other people asked, where should I advertise? Um, other people said, connections and reaching out blindly is hard. It's a lot of work when 97% of it goes nowhere. So those, I would say, are kind of some of the general concerns and challenges that you guys have. So let's start with some of the easy ones that we can knock out of the park real quick. Um, I'm not seeing freelance jobs in the market. They all want you in-house. Do you want to talk about that one, Marissa? Yeah, I've never seen a freelance job on, you know, like at style careers or anything like that. So I would not be looking there. I would not waste your time there. Um, I've never actually had a job from Upwork either. So on the way, like a lot of times clients will come to me and probably because I've been doing it for a while, but also I treat LinkedIn as kind of like an Instagram, Facebook. So I don't have social media on my phone during the week. I will go on LinkedIn and I'll comment and I'll share um, cool articles that are whatever's going on in my industry and people will find me that way. Um, The other way you can, that I did at the very beginning was I reached out to my network and not in terms of, um, like any like design network. It's more of friends and family at the beginning. Cause you don't have much, like I didn't have much of a portfolio. I didn't have much experience, 
But so I reached out to my design school friends. I reached out to my UCLA friends and luckily for me, I've stayed in the sports industry. So, and a lot of my friends have too. So that's how I got a job at Mizuno because my friend was working at Mizuno, not doing design, nothing related to design. I think she was probably selling volleyballs. Um, but that's, she heard Mizuno needed a designer. And so I got looped in that way. Um, so it, it, it can be, those are the few other ideas on how you can find clients. Yeah. And that's the thing. These, true freelance opportunities they're not listed online you're not gonna like you said they're not on style careers they're not on um they can be on upwork although i have mixed feelings about upwork i know people have done well with upwork um but there still can be a lot of junk on there and it has some bad stereotypes for like just cheap people wanting cheap work um there's some outliers but that kind of generally speaking um you're not gonna find this stuff posted on craigslist so what it always comes down to from my perception, and this is how my career grew, is you're, you can't sit behind the comfort of your computer and apply for these freelance opportunities like you would apply for typical jobs. It comes down to the complete opposite. You have to put yourself out there as the freelancer. You need to go and use whatever tools and resources you have. If that is some small network, and maybe it's not even people in the industry, like you mentioned, um, just talking to people who maybe work at brands in other departments who mm-hmm. could connect you. Maybe it is other designers that work in the industry. Um, you know, we had, I had done a lot of catalog work, like in terms of designing um, catalogs for the collections. And we mm-hmm. had a printer who printed the catalogs. And I knew that they printed a lot of other catalogs for fashion brands. And so I reached out to my sales rep at the printer and I said, hey, I'm freelancing now. And I was wondering if, you know, you knew anyone who also prints their catalog with you guys who might need a freelancer or if you could just make some introductions. And I got some introductions that way. And that turned into some paying projects. And Mm. so sometimes, yeah, so you just have to get creative with like who you're reaching out to. And if you don't have this network, because maybe you don't for whatever reason, then it comes down to just pitching yourself like you said earlier you go to trade shows and you pitch yourself maybe you do it cold pitching via email mm-hmm. um and that or on linkedin or on linkedin yeah. or like wherever it social is social media social mm-hmm. media i know a girl who landed a four thousand dollar freelance project off of instagram oh, um, awesome yeah these things happen and it was because she saw the brand in their stories complaining about a problem they were having Mm -hmm. and she responded and she said hey i see you're going through this struggle that looks really hard um i'd love to just give you some advice and she gave him some tips on how to deal with it the next thing you know they hopped on a call and they were like wow you really know your stuff like can you can we hire you to fix this for us and it turned into this like very substantial project so you know I think in ways it comes out to like you putting yourself out there, paying attention, directly asking for the work, you're not going to find the job postings. Yeah. Um, Oh, that gives me another idea. So I've had a few um, projects through vendors. So vendors that are selling fabric or trims or whatever, they'll meet a company and they need help with design. And so they think of me and then I get get the job that way. So that's another thing of networking and, but your vendors won't know that you're looking for freelance jobs unless you tell them. Yeah. So you have to tell them. Yes. 
Great, great, great point. So all sorts of interesting examples. You have to get a little creative with it. You're not going to find the job postings. you got to figure out how to make this work happen. Um, so then the next one was where should I advertise? Um, and I personally just blanket statement, I'm going to say don't advertise. It's, mm-hmm. I it's agree. Prob- it's probably going to be a waste of money. Yes. Mm-hmm. So um, I've never done it. I think you said you'd never done it. No. Yeah. Mm-mm. Okay. Um, and so then this kind of leads us to this whole um, connections and reaching out blindly. It's a lot of work when 97% of it goes nowhere. Yeah, it, that's true. And a lot of times, a lot of it does go nowhere. Um, one is I would reevaluate maybe what you're putting in your pitch and how you're pitching yourself and presenting yourself. Um, you want to, there's some, some nuances to this where you want to think about and talk about the brand and how, you know, you could potentially help them solve some of their problems. And first, you kind of want to find out what those problems are. So sometimes it starts with conversations instead of um, what I typically see from most aspiring freelancers who don't get responses to their pitches is because this is what their pitch looks like. I'm a freelance designer. I have eight years of experience. I know how to do tech packs and graded specs and production and design. Let me know if you have any work. (laughs) And that was like a very blunt way of putting it, but that's what the pitch looks like. And that's not going to get you any work. Um, I don't know if we have time to dive into like a really strategic pitch. Um, I know you talked about it when we interviewed on, on, when I had you on the podcast previous, um, I go into it in my, my book on freelancing, but do you want to talk about some of your thoughts on kind of pitching yourself more strategically? Well, I mean, this goes back to, so I used to have my own line too. I had a, a scarf line and so I'd have to pitch stores. Maybe this is why I'm so good at pitching. So I've just been pitching for so long, <laughs> but, um, so I would pitch stores and I mean, it's just like any, if you've been, read any sales book or if you've been in any sales role, usually you're going to get 10 no's or nine no's before you get one. Yes. True. So if you have that set up, you're like, okay, that's why you probably think 97% of your networking goes nowhere. Um, the other thing I would say too is sometimes people will come back to you. So I had one um, lead contact me three years ago and I didn't hear from her until like a month ago and she's not happy with her production. So now I'm just helping her source production. So she came back to me. And I was probably too expensive at the time for her. I don't know what, why she went with somebody else, but I didn't ask. Um, but you never know where, where those connections will go. And so just think of it as like setting up your pipeline yeah. as, when you're networking. That's another, it might not happen this month. Right. It, right. I think that it can feel very easy to think, oh, I'm going to pitch and this is going to turn into a project tomorrow. But no. you have to think about like yeah. you as a consumer, how quickly do you decide to buy something or opt into a service that costs 300 or 3000 or mm-hmm. $10,000? Like you take time to think about that and maybe you have to fit it into the logistics of your own life or your budget. And so these things do take time. The other thing I'll say is that, um, yes, pitching – can feel like a very low return rate. Um, But the thing is that what happens with your freelance career is you start pitching at the beginning and that's what builds your foundation. You're not going to be pitching and sending out, you know, a hundred pitches, 97 of which go nowhere for the rest of your career. You're building, like you said, a pipeline. You're also building a foundation because I don't know about you, but like for me, all of my work after that initial foundation was built came from 
referrals and word of mm-hmm. mouth and other people like bringing me on. Like I had a lot of success with um, one of the strategies I used was really trying to have as much FaceTime. And I say FaceTime just in terms of like phone calls and communication or if I was at a trade show, like trying to get in front of um, people who were decision makers. So whether they were manager or director or even executive level, really trying to build strong relationships with those people where um, with brands that I was doing projects with, because what happened a lot was Sometimes those people move and they go to a different brand Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and then they bring you on. Like, I think I had one executive who I became really close with and over my career, I think brought me into four different brands for like really substantial projects. So I think, you know, once you do land those projects, it is a lot of legwork up front. But once you do focus on doing a kick-ass job building those relationships with as many people internally as you can because they will bring you on the next place that they go. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I agree. I agree. Yeah. Um, okay. So what else on finding clients? Is there anything else you want to talk through? Um, I mean, at the beginning, yeah, it was more reaching out and now they find me. So yeah. it's, yeah. And it, you know, I, I've started using Instagram as more of my resume too. Um, so I ha- I hired somebody to help me do the social media for that. So she puts together reviews for me. Um, and it's all my LinkedIn reviews. Oh, that's one thing. Ask for reviews on LinkedIn every single time you finish a project. I have probably 10 reviews on there. So I use them on my website and now we've started using them in social media because I started getting a few leads through Instagram too and a few jobs. Um, that's just how people are finding you now. They're not, no one's asking for a resume. No one's asking for a portfolio. They want to just Google your name and they want to see what you're doing. Yeah. So I never got to that point, um, of doing any marketing on Instagram, but you're, I've seen them on your feed. So you take like a quote that someone said about how awesome it was to work with you. And then you turn it into a post for Instagram and, uh-huh. then, and you're finding like work is coming through that. Well, I found work coming through it earlier this year. And so that's why I was like, Oh, people's eyeballs are going here. So I started investing money into it. Um, yeah, that's all. Mm -hmm. Okay. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. That was not anything I ever personally tackled, but there's all sorts of creative ways to do this. And I'll throw out there because if you're listening, depending on where you are in your freelance career, if you're, you know, maybe someone established and you're looking to grow, then think about implementing some of these strategies um, in terms of like, oh, creating this thing for Instagram. But like, I, I preface some of this conversation with if you're just getting started, it can start to feel really overwhelming with all the things that we're telling you like, oh, and do it on LinkedIn and do it on Instagram and do it here and put yourself out there here, like pick and choose what you want. And take the stuff and run with it. Don't feel like you have to do everything because I know it can feel really overwhelming to manage a lot of that. And I know like you weren't doing everything at the beginning. I didn't do everything at the beginning. You slowly grow and build into some of these things. Right. Yeah. Like at the beginning when I first, I think I went back when the boys were about two. So I've been doing this for three years now. And yeah, I only had my portfolio on Coral Float. And I think that was the only thing I was doing. <laughs> and now so. you're like everywhere, but you've been doing this for nine years. So it's like, yes. it takes time to build up to that. Yes. So. Yes. 
quick interruption in this episode to let you know that if you're enjoying this conversation, I have tons more resources and advice for you on freelancing. I am running a program starting in January of 2020 called Successful Fashion Freelancer. And you can get on the wait list to hear more about that program when it opens. And you can also get my ultimate guide to being a freelance fashion designer, absolutely free. Just go to SoHeidi.com slash freelance. It's S-E-W-H-E-I-D-I.com slash freelance. I will send you all the details on the program when it opens, as well as the free ultimate guide. And if you miss the January 2020 window, you can still go to that webpage and sign up, and I will let you know the next time that program opens. All right, now let's jump back to the conversation. Um, okay, let's dive into the next question, which I hear a lot. <laughs> How do you deal with the feast and famine? Um, this can come with cash flow and like l- feeling a lack of security of never having a super steady paycheck. And this can also come with the feeling of projects like, oh, my gosh, I have 80 hours of work to do this week. And then next week I have five hours. So how mm. um, how do you deal with the roller coaster, both financially and project wise of the freelance lifestyle? Yeah, first, I would say save up um, six months to a year worth of your expenses. So you're not Okay, because when I did not have this saved up, I was pitching too cheap of um, proposals. Like my hourly rate wasn't high enough. And so then I'd end up working and it wasn't covering all my expenses. So you're more confident by charging more when you have your savings in check. So you can lose projects. Um, And so you got to make sure that that's all taken care of. And just because you're not an employee they're not always going to pay you on time and it's super stressful. So if you have a a good buffer, you won't be as stressed out. I mean, I still get stressed out, but, (laughs) um, and then project wise. So what I do, and I've been doing this for probably five years now, I take 50% upfront. So say the project is worth $5,000. I, only start the project once I have a $2,500 check in my hand, because I found that some people will not pay at the end. Um, even though we have a contract, even though we have everything set up, um, this happened with a client in London and it was a disaster because I couldn't just fly to London and demand the money and hire a British lawyer. And so it just ended up being such a hassle and stressed me out too much. So I just asked for 50% up front. If it's an if it's an international client, you could even ask for seventy five percent upfront. Um, so and and say it's just like when you do production, right? You know, sometimes they make the you pay more at the beginning, and then once you've developed a relationship with them, they'll let you do net thirty, net sixty. Right. But so think of it as the same thing, and especially if they've been in the apparel industry, they'll understand that um, and say, you know, once we've developed a relationship, then you can pay fifty percent upfront. But it, right now, I want seventy five percent upfront. And you're much more um, confident in those conversations when you have your savings in check. Yes. Um, everything you said about the deposit and all that stuff is absolutely true. I typically never – I don't think there was – there were some clients who after I had developed a relationship and they, like, needed it to start yesterday. And I was like, okay, I'll start. Like, you got to put the check in the mail, but I'll start. And I would start in good faith that the check was coming. But that was after a relationship had been developed. Um As far as like the security of having a super steady paycheck, something that I learned, oh my gosh, this took me like seven or eight years to learn, (laughs) um, was 
you might have a really big month and that's amazing. Don't just take all that money and think, oh, this is just all my money now and I'm just going to go blow it. Or, Mm -hmm. you know, so you might have a $5,000 month or a $15,000 month, you know, depending on where you are in your pay range, the number doesn't really matter. But if you have a big month in relation to what you typically could or, you know, previously are used to earning, live off of what you're used to earning. So for even numbers, let's say you have a month that's 10000 and you're used to making four to 5000 a month then take your four to 5000 and put that other five or 6000 in your savings so that next month if it doesn't go so well you have a buffer and so it's almost like you are earning more money at different times of the year or the month whatever and so you have this roller coaster of income but you're still going to create a situation where you almost like give yourself a steady paycheck. So and, and like you said, you have you build up this savings and this cushion and this buffer. And I got to the point um, once I kind of figured out the strategy, like I created a whole separate bank account where I had like all my business income. And then I literally twice a month pulled a paycheck out of there for myself. And mm. that that business income and this is like once you get to a certain level um you know i don't worry about like setting up another bank account now um unless you feel like you're at that stage get yourself used to like living off this you know air quote paycheck again and then as that business account grows and builds like maybe you're like wow you know what i only need a five thousand dollar buffer in here and it has eight thousand dollars in it so i'm going to take an extra three thousand like you can get to the stages where you do that but keep that buffer and don't just blow all your cash because you had a good month (laughs) yeah and that's that buffer also creates the fund where if you have an awful awful client you say you walk away from the client because maybe they're stressing you out too much. Maybe they're yeah. just not nice how they talk to you. Like, like I'm going to give up this paycheck because I don't want to deal with it. And I've got this buffer and you yeah. then have the control to do that, which feels so good. Oh, yes. Very good. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, when it comes to the projects, like I think that um, what happens and I was guilty of this for a long time is that you say yes to everything and you think that everybody needed it yesterday and mm. you wind up overextending yourself what I started to learn the hard way was that when you ask people their timelines there was actually more wiggle room than you might have thought and so first of all it's like well when do you need it delivered and first understand what their timeline looks like and then it's you up to you as the freelancer to say you know what I'm really booked I want to make sure this gets done. I'm going to do it for you this one time in this rush, this rush timeline. But if it happens again, you know, we'll have to implement some sort of rush fee to make this work for me and my schedule. Um, Or you can choose not to do it and you can choose to say, you know what, I'd really love to work with you on the project. I don't have any time for the next two weeks, but the third week I have time. And so it comes down to how much do you want to bend over backwards to make it get done, but you need to communicate that to the client and be very open with them about it so they know that you're doing it as a one-time exception and this is not always how you work. Or you need to decide, you know what, I'm going to take the risk of maybe losing this project because it's kind of meh and I'm just not going to try to sign up for too much right now. And I know that I can get more work coming down the pipeline because I have been out there pitching and I have been out there like strategizing with my network and talking to people. So I think it kind of comes down to you managing it 
Um, it still is a challenge. Like you're still going to have really full months and then light months. But the best thing I can suggest is just to have those open conversations with the client about the timeline and then make the decision for yourself personally, whether or not you want to bend over backwards to make sure it happens or not. Mm -hmm. Whenever at the beginning, um, when I ask them, like, what's your timeline, if it's too tight. And for me, that could be like two weeks, three weeks, because I, there's other things going on. And then I have little kids and they get sick very often. So I always put a big buffer in anything that I do. Um, I charge more if it's a tight timeline. Yeah. And I don't even tell them. I just up the, cause I know I'm going to have to work on the weekend. Yeah. So, or whatever at night. Um, and then the other thing that I've done this year, um, is I've set up boundaries and I'm very, uh, honest with the client too. I'm like, Oh, I'm in the office 30 hours a week and I don't work weekends and I don't have email on my phone and I check my email twice a day. So I tell the client all these things beforehand. So they're not expecting me to answer the China factory at night. Yeah. A lot of times it does come down to like clear communication and setting expectations so that people know what to expect and that they're not disappointed when things go differently. So just like you said, setting those boundaries and communicating that from day one. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Um, okay. So this kind of dives right into the next question, which on a broad scope is how do I manage clients and projects? Um, the first one that comes up is <laughs> this one I hear a lot. Uh, my number one frustration with freelancing has been the revision loop. It's been frustrating to try to outline all the details of the project and ensure they don't go outside of scope. So I don't know if you've ever heard of or used the term scope creep, but that's a very well-known term in the freelance industry in general, not just fashion. And it's where the scope of the project quickly creeps outside of the original agreement. And I think that this can happen with like, oh, we all of a sudden need 20 revisions to this tech pack or to this design. And you're like, oh, I quoted it as a flat project rate. And these 20 revisions are taking me so much more time than what I had allotted based on the price. So how do you handle your revisions? I, in my contract, or even in my proposal, so before we even sign a contract, I say that it, um, so we'll do concept design, and then I'll do one to two revisions. I don't touch the tech pack until the design's 100% done. Like they're not allowed to make any changes once it hits the tech pack. It's just like they can do it if they want in Excel, but we've already knocked it all out in concept design phase. Um, So I just, and then I say, if it goes over that, then that's my hourly rate. Yeah. So I have my project base because I know how long it takes me to do a sports bra. And then I know how long it takes me to do the technical design of it. And then if there's anything outside of that, it's, you know, 150 an hour. Yeah. And that's the same exact thing I would advise is you need to outline how many revisions they get in the proposal. Yeah. Um, I typically include two to three revisions um, for design. But the thing is that I think you need to be mindful about this. So when you're doing design and you're working with a client, let's say you're doing 10 pieces and one of them, they ask for like four revisions and you've quoted three in the proposal. Like, don't be too stingy and don't nickel and dime. Like you kind of have to come down to a judgment call on this of like, is the client been good to deal with? And you know, where are we at in the revision phase? And are they asking for this for a ton of things? And is this getting out of control? So I think on one level, you can say, yeah, you know what, it's a teeny bit beyond the scope, but I'm going to just do this one because I want to make sure that you're happy with the design. And then as it starts to grow beyond that, um, 
you need to speak up. And this is one of the number one problems I see with freelancers, especially when they're first starting out is like, and I was the same way. Like I was afraid to speak up to the brand, to the client, because I looked at them like on this pedestal and I was like, oh, but I just have to do everything to make sure they're happy because they're the client and I'm just this Mm. little freelancer. And you have to look at it as like, no, stand up tall, stand up proud with your shoulders high and like you're a business too and you need to treat it like this and you need to, and this takes practice and time. Like I learned this the hard way through experience and I think that most people, like we could tell them this all day long, but they're still going to learn it the hard way. Um, Well, and you got to remind yourself, they're trying to run a business, you're trying to run a business. They're trying to get as much work out of you as they can. Yeah. And you are trying to like, that's why you have to charge what you should be charging at the beginning, you know? And then I feel like when you're at a good spot for project space and you know how long it takes you to do things, everything just runs a lot more smoothly and, but you'll learn with each new project. You will. Yeah. And it does just come out down to like speaking up and not like cowering down and just being like, Oh, I guess I'll just do all these revisions. Like speak up earlier than later, sooner than later, when, you know, the revisions start getting out of control and just saying like, listen, you know, the original agreement was three revisions. We're now on five. And I, you know, I, I respect your ideas and I want to make sure the design gets to where you want it to be, but I'm also a business. And so we can do more revisions, but, um, you know, I'm going to have to do that at an additional hourly rate. It's Mm -hmm. also the reason why I suggest My advice is when you're starting freelancing, just charge hourly because it's so much easier to build all those revisions in hourly versus charging by project. The learning curve is just a little bit steeper. You can do it. And in the long run, you can and you will wind up making more money when you charge by project. But you also have to be assertive enough to manage the project and speak up when things go outside of scope. And that's the biggest challenge that I see people having. That's, I've also been able to turn project jobs into retainers Ah, yes. because of this, because I tell them like, you're going to save money if you just put me on retainer. Cause I'm not going to, you know, 15 minutes for sourcing here. And, um, I, I don't have to track my hours, yeah. but I just will set up an hour or a, a retainer. And then they know what they're paying. I know how much I'm making. And then I know how many hours I'm supposed to be working. Yeah. So. Yeah. No, very, very smart. And I did retainers with some clients as well. And it does work. If the, if the brand can um, fit that into their budget and their business structure, that can work really, really well for both parties. Um, okay. So second question when it comes to managing projects um, is pretty specific, but we'll address it because I've heard something similar to this before. So... Um, this person says, I've worked for seven plus years in sweaters. I approve yarn tension swatches and color on the daily. I also get called into fittings multiple times a week. How do you manage that as a freelancer working from home? Do you receive samples directly from the factory? Fittings are such an important part of my job. I can't imagine that being handed off to someone else. Do you do fittings? Uh-huh. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. How do you I, manage this? Yeah. So uh, the, the samples do come directly to my house. Like I have a bunch of pajamas up behind me. Um, and then we do fit sessions. That's when I'll go in house and not even in house. Like sometimes the brands I work for don't have like a big headquarters. So we rent out a space, um, and do the, and like all collaborate or come together because I'm a lot of times I'm the only designer on the team. So they're looking to me to set up the fit session, manage the fit session, you know, take photos, respond with fit comments and all that. But 
And then that goes directly back to the factory. So those are the only days that I actually do have to go in. Those are a little hard to do over video, you know? Yeah. I, um, I never worked with any local brands that were like physically close enough to do that. Mm. Um, and so so what'd you do? I did it all either on Skype or a lot of times the brands that I worked with, which this feels crazy to me now that I'm like saying it out loud, (laughs) but like they just trusted me. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. And it was like after a certain amount of time, like I know how their product should fit and I can confidently like put it together. Now, obviously, before we went through bulk production, the the samples were sent to me, you know, we would sometimes just ask the factory for two samples and they would send one to me and one Mm -hmm. to the brand. And then they would look at it and they would say, you know what, everything looks good. We're good. Or we need to make these changes, whatever you make the changes. Um, so, and I know other, I know a technical designer who exclusively does technical design and she does all her fittings over Skype and it works really, really well. She does have some local clients where she will go in house for the day, but for people that aren't, location um convenient she does everything over skype and so i had the same type of success and same with like approving yarn tension or approving lab dips or strike offs um again you can ask for the factory to send two or Mm -hmm. you can send one directly to you as the freelancer mark it up make your comments and then ship that to the client for their approval if they care to be involved in that and some people do I've worked with, like, established um, trading company brands that, like, they didn't really care to be involved in that. They fully trusted me to approve colors and strike-offs and and hand looms and knit-downs. And then I even worked with, like, small startups that the guy was like, I'm a business person. You're the design person. Like, you can send me some pictures, but I don't need to approve every little thing. Like, that's Mm -hmm. not something I even care to be involved with. And so it'll just depend. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's why they hire you, right? To, right? to do it. They don't have an experience fitting and it's more just, okay, let's meet in person once every quarter. Like right. that's how often I'm doing fit sessions. So. Right, 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 right. And so then in that time you might, you know, fly out to them and do a bunch of stuff on site for a few days or something. Like I've definitely done that, but not specifically just to get fit fittings done. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so that leads great into the next one, which is working with startup clients. <laughs> and um, the biggest challenge that seems to come up here is clients that don't understand the product development process. And this leads into the second question, which is like when people expect the outfit to come out exactly like the picture or that they don't understand the process and that some fabrics simply don't work for what they want. Mm. Um, you have a very interesting strategy for managing this. Can you I don't know if you know what I'm talking about, but yeah, well, so what I offer is I created this little course It's called apparel startup bootcamp. And so I take my clients through that. And if they sign up for a project with me, I give it to them free and it takes about an hour and I have, you know, like a PDF that I send out, but it's, it's teaching them all the um, tools and all the definitions. And so we can have a real conversation later about specs and BOMs and tech packs, because a lot of them are not familiar with that. Um, so I, I look at it as like a teaching hour for them. Um, I've never been a teacher, but I just know that I'm going to have to do that in order to even do the project with them. Um, if they want it, just a one-off thing, then I would charge them for that. But 
if if they're working with me, I, I want them to know what's going on and I want them to understand their costs of the garment and how to build that out. So, yeah. And I think, you know, this interestingly kind of leads us back to the first question, which is like, can I be a freelancer straight out of school? And I think a lot of times brands are looking for you. It depends. It depends on what type or size of brand you're working with. But um, some of the smaller, you know, more startup independent brands are really looking for you to drive and guide the project. And without that Mm -hmm. experience, it's really hard to do. But when it comes down to clients that don't understand the product development process, your job as a freelancer is to guide them through that. And that needs to kind of be built into your service package. So whether that's, you know, an hour long phone call to outline how everything's going to work. And ultimately, you know, that can turn into maybe you creating this little PDF booklet or a mini course like you now have, Um, you know, again, that's not something you need to create tomorrow. If you're just starting your freelance career, like don't get overwhelmed with that. You'll just talk them through the process and you'll ultimately develop these resources that you can use over and over. Um, But it's your job to manage that and it's your job to explain why this fabric won't work um that's just that's what they've hired you for and you need to again speak it comes, up. yeah it comes down to being assertive and you need to speak up and be confident that you can guide this project and not just oh they're the client i'm the freelancer okay if they want that fabric i guess but that's you can't do that you have to speak no up. yeah yeah I always warn them like, oh, I don't know if this is going to work, you know, like we can try it, but here's plan B. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, So let's jump into the last and probably one of the other topics. I mean, I keep saying this. All these topics come up so much. That's why we got a lot of questions on them. That's why we're doing this episode to answer all of them. Mm -hmm. Um, But pricing. Oh, boy. So... (laughs) Let me just read a couple, and then we'll just kind of dive in. Um, How do you put a value on each project if you charge per project? Um, As an experienced technical designer, what should I be charging? Um, And then there's a lot of stuff on how do I get people to understand my pricing in relation to them having very unrealistic expectations of what it should cost. So um, what, what are your thoughts? Yeah. Um, in terms of the low cost, like if somebody says you're too expensive, I think I would just nicely respond and say, well, this is what other clients pay me. And this is what I've been charging for X amount of time. And you're not just paying me to drop a CAD, you're paying me for my experience. So I think that's a key point is, and it goes back to, you know, recommending different fabrics or teaching them how to launch a line or how to talk to a factory. That's all experience. And that can't like, that's, that should be factored into your hourly rate. Um, when I first started, I met with a CPA and she told me that I should be charging $50 an hour. Um, before that I was charging 35 an hour. And when I was working for TJ Maxx and Marshalls and it was too little, it was just, it, it wasn't enough to live in LA. Yeah. So, and then once I started charging 50 and then at Mizuno, I was charging 90. So I slowly, you know, brought it up. Um, but I would definitely talk to, you don't need like a financial planner, but just like a CPA, because they're going to tell you what every state is different in terms of taxes, but in California, I needed to be making $50 an hour in order for me to even bring, bringing home enough for me to be working. Yeah. So. Yeah. Um, 
One of the things oh. I talk about a lot is when you're first freelancing, um, and this is, you know, these are more strategies I've learned over the years. This is not necessarily what I did starting out. And I have gotten my ass handed to me on some pricing. Um, and I think it's almost a rite of passage for a freelancer. Like, again, yeah. we could give you all the advice in the world, and you're still going to have projects that, like, bite you in the ass, and you're like, I got way underpaid for that. And it's just part of the learning experience. You're just going to go through it. So first of all, know that. Second, um, when you're first freelancing, you don't jump from working full time to quitting your job and trying to freelance from zero. Like, I mean, okay, I actually did Mm. do that. Bad idea. Um, Luckily, I had very low overhead and my partner, now husband Mark, was able to support us. But um, and depending on everybody's financial situation, maybe that works for you. But um, do some stuff on the side and optimize for learning, not earning. Like you're not going to get the highest rate out of the park. So do something that feels fair for you and the client and look at it as a learning experience. And one of the um, greatest pieces of advice that I got from someone in the freelancing space outside of fashion, but it works for fashion as well, is this concept of dropping three zeros. So what is the salary that you're currently earning in a freelance or in a, excuse me, in a, an employment job role? So if you're earning $50,000 a year, drop three zeros and you charge $50 oh. an hour. 80000 yeah. drop three zeros, you charge 80 an hour. Because what that works out to is approximately double your hourly rate as an employee. So if you're earning $80,000 a year, you're working 40 hours a week, and on average, you're earning about $40 an hour. Now, you're earning more than that because you get benefits and you get time off and you have taxes that are paid for you and all of that sort of stuff. Healthcare, yeah. Yeah, so the freelance rate when you drop three zeros is 80 an hour. So now you're technically earning twice as much per hour But here's the thing with freelancing. You're not always getting 40 hours a week paid. You're Mm -hmm. not getting taxes paid for you. You don't have benefits. You don't have all that other stuff. So I tell people, drop the three zeros, take that number, start there, and you can always raise it. Like you did, I raise my prices as well as you build up some rapport and some confidence. Um, And when it comes to project-based, like just multiply. If you know it takes you three hours to do this task, multiply $50 $50 an hour times three hours and charge 150 for it. You will learn. You'll learn things like, oh, it actually takes me longer than that. So <laughs> yeah. Know, or building your it. vision time yes. too. There's a learning um, curve for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And then I've started charging, I've been charging a flat rate for sourcing for a few years now. Yeah. And I used to charge 800. Then I, then I bumped it up to 1200. Now I charge 1500 because I'm going to outdoor retailer and sourcing and meeting with all the people there, or it's just, it's, it's a lot of my network too. It takes time to email everybody and send out swatches and figure out who to send them to, like which factory to use. But, um, I found sourcing is a good thing to just charge like a flat rate for flat too. Rate. Yeah. Yeah. And there's different things that make sense based on what the project is. Um, when right. it comes to project base, like you're going to learn the hard way a couple times for sure. I don't care how prepared you think you are. Just be prepared to, to learn, um, and probably undercharge. but that's okay. You'll figure it out and you'll do better next time. Um, and then as far as like dealing with the cheap clients, I think, you know, it's interesting what you said, like, yeah, you can, you can try to justify and validate your price by saying all these other things like, oh, that's what my client, these other clients are paying. What I personally found was one of two things is one, that's just not your client. Like if they're not willing to pay you 50 or 80 an hour, then 
that's not the person that you're meant to work with. And they'll usually wind up being the biggest pain in the ass clients anyways, the people that want stuff for really cheap. So move on and work on getting clients that actually respect and understand your rates. And then second is that sometimes they do come back. I know you said you had that woman Mm -hmm. who came back three years later. You were like, I don't think she wanted to pay my rate initially. And then she came back because all of her production went wrong. So, yeah, you never know. Yeah, Mm -hmm. you never know. Um, But they're always... And sometimes they're not ready to pay you that either. I've had people come back and they're like, okay, now I have enough money saved up to work with you. Yeah. And then, you know, there's always those people that are cheap, 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 and they're never going to want to pay. And so just move on because, honestly, they are the worst clients to work with, the people that nickel and dime you. And it comes back to, like, getting into having that six-month buffer of savings Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Is because when you need the money, you will you take will take the on project, those jobs, yeah, and they wind mm-hmm. up sucking mm-hmm. for everybody. Mm-hmm. So building that foundation first, whether it be working full time and doing freelance on the side to build up, or however you're able to do it, is crucial because no matter how much you think I'm not going to go into desperation mode, you go into desperation mode and you do it, and it sucks. Yeah. The thing that helps my family and I get out of debt and then save up money and buy a house and all this other stuff was Dave Ramsey. And his book is $10 or you just listen to his free podcast. But um, that's a good way or like good tips for you on how to save money. And then you'd be able to start a side business. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And a lot of the stuff that I have followed, um, I'm familiar with Dave Ramsey. I don't personally follow him or haven't read his book, but um, Ramit Sethi. Um, yeah, and we'll, li- mm-hmm. we'll link to both of those in the show notes. But they really talk a lot about um, getting your finances in order, and then, like you said, building up and kickstarting something on the side. Um, they're not specific to fashion, but their advice is priceless. And um, so that plus Marie Forleo, we'll put all that in the show notes so you guys can check out all those resources. So um, this was amazing. Thank you so much for chiming in and doing this awesome AMA with me, Marissa. Thank you for having me. I wish there was something like this when I first started freelancing. So when you asked me, I was like, yes, we should do this. Yes, we should totally do this. So thank you, everybody who submitted your questions. We really appreciate it. And um, hopefully we were able to give some good answers to help you kickstart or grow your freelance career. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Successful Fashion Designer Podcast. I really hope you enjoyed this special AMA format that I did with Marissa. It was super fun to answer all your questions, and I hope it was valuable for you as well. A couple quick notes before you hit stop and go on to the next episode or the next podcast that you have queued up in your player. Uh, I will be opening up my freelance program to teach you step-by-step how to become or grow as a freelancer. So whether you're kickstarting or you want to build your business further and take it to the next level, my step-by-step program uh, called Successful Fashion Freelancer will help you get there. And that program is opening up January of 2020. So here's what you should do. Get yourself on the wait list. You can do that by going to soheidi.com slash freelance. It's S-E-W-H-E-I-D-I.com slash freelance. We will link to that in the show notes as well. And if you're listening after January 2020 and you want to get in on this, still put yourself on the wait list to find out the next time it opens. When you sign up for the wait list, I will also send you a direct download to my free ultimate guide to being a freelance fashion designer that will kickstart you right now wherever you are. 
So definitely check that out if freelancing is something you are looking to grow or kickstart in this next year. Uh, beyond that, thank you so much for listening to the Successful Fashion Designer Podcast. I also want to give a big shout out to my husband, Mark, who handles all of the tech and editing behind the scenes, as well as my right-hand woman, Tara. She is amazing, and she helps make the show possible. She coordinates the guests. She gets it published and pushed out to iTunes and all the other platforms. And you guys don't see a lot of the work that goes on behind the scenes to put a podcast together, but it is not just a set it and forget it thing. You do the interview, and then magically, poof, it's done. Um, so thank you to Mark and Tara for making sure all that happens and supporting the show. And again, thank you to you for listening. I would not be here if it were not for you. And I appreciate each and every one of you. If you haven't yet, definitely. We are always so grateful to get reviews and write-ups on iTunes, Apple Podcasts now. Um, So take a few seconds to write us a review. It really, really does go super far and helps the show out in so many ways. So if you get any type of value out of this show, that is the best way that you can give back to the SFD community and help get the show into more earbuds. As always, if you want to hear about any more of the resources or you want that link to sign up for the waitlist for the freelance program, scroll down by checking out, scroll down wherever you're listening to check out the show notes and we have all the links and everything that you need there. Thanks again so much for listening and I'll talk to you in the next episode of the Successful Fashion Designer Podcast.